Welcome to the third episode of the Product Weekend Podcast Season 2, powered by Productized. This is where we meet the inspiring people behind great products. My name is Romoita and today we have with us Julian Lescure. Julian is a successful founder, product leader, advisor, coach and investor. He has worked with several companies of varying sizes around Europe and is now based in Lisbon. Besides being a product coach, Julian is also a car lover, community builder and creative mind. In this conversation we talked about his path from design and marketing to product management and about his endeavors as a founder as well as helping other founders, while getting some super interesting insights for any product person or entrepreneur. By the end of the episode you have books, podcasts and travel recommendations from him. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. As a teenager, what did you want to become when you'd grow up? As a teenager, I wanted to be a car designer. Car designer? Mm. Oh, why was that? Is there a passion for cars, for designs? Both yeah, of them? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. Like, mm. uh, my dad used to like his cars. And uh, and I think, you know, when we grew up, we all look up to our dad. And then I, I always liked cars. And then I started to get really into it. Mm. Um magazines and everything and uh yeah i love the industrial design part of it cool and when you so you went to then study marketing and then business was there any relation to the passion for car design in that choice or by then you were already like you already knew that car design was not what you would follow did you still have the hope that you'd follow that path uh, no, not anymore, for sure. Um, but I think I looked it up when I was um, a teenager, and I think you had to be very good at math when mm. it comes to industrial design and all that sort of things, uh, which was not my forte. Um, mm-hmm. And then it changed into something more, I would say, opportunistic, which was business um, in general. But I always mm-hmm. had that thing for design. Like I remember when my dad bought the first computer we ever had, Mm-hmm. Uh, which probably you've never seen because you're too young. But it was like a, it was um, Amstrad, uh, okay. and then there was like a paint in it, like as a software. Mm-hmm. And I used to um, design floor plans for houses. Mm, it was inside, cool. outside, and stuff like that. So I've always been into that design part, and then it switched to business. Mm-hmm. And why was that switch to business? Was more like okay, design is not going to get me any money (laughs) i would be poor forever maybe i need to get into business no it's a good question i I don't know exactly um i think i went into first my first studies were into sales Mm -hmm. uh, in france in la rochelle and then there was um, a two years uh, diploma you get to be like a basically marketing and sales Mm -hmm. Uh, that's pretty interesting um and then after that i did a year abroad um in the uk and after I came back to France, did a business school uh, with a double um, diploma in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So okay. basically, it's management and new with a specialization in new marketing models. So it's very okay. marketing. But as a first internship, I switched back to my first love and uh, applied to be a web designer. So design in an agency, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I got that internship in Barcelona in uh, in uh, one of BBDO's um, agencies. 
mm-hmm. which had as uh, one of their clients the Museum of Science of Barcelona. Cool. So yeah, I was doing like little pixel illustration, mm-hmm. like pixel by pixel for the newsletter, or for the microsite, or all this type of stuff. Cool. So that was probably your uh, first contact with uh, what would then become like a web development and digital products or not yet? Yeah, no, I would say definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was already being like techno- technology friendly before, mm-hmm. but that was my first really uh, professional. Right. Uh, it was very weird, I think, for the people I was working with because because I studied business and I had like, you know, I wanted to look professional and things. So I was probably the only designer at the time turning up in a suit. It's <laughs> just completely ridiculous. <laughs> but for me, that was my idea. You know, you want to look good, you want to be professional. So I had a shirt and stuff. And, uh-huh. like, uh, and after they told me to like, yeah, cool, relax, cool down, relax, relax a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so you, you said that you, you you grew up in France, right? Um, but then you studied in both UK and yes. Barcelona, right? Yeah. So what's the city that you call home? Now you're living in Portugal, so you've been a bit all around Europe. Uh, yeah, I I spent 15 years in London. In London? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was not the plan, but I don't think when you spend that much time in the States, it's not very often the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely a big part of my life is tied to this city. Um, so now I'm in Lisbon since uh, a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, calling it home for now. <laughs> cool. And regarding uh, going back to, to that uh, first experience in, as um, a web designer, um, what? So then you never. It was like for a year, right, that you were doing that job. Yeah. Uh, and then you didn't go. You didn't go back to specifically designing. Was it clear that it was not what you wanted to do, or why so, did you change after that? Yeah, what happened at the time is I had a project manager. I was working with a project manager. I was mm-hmm. getting the requirements from the clients, and right. he would come to me and uh, pass me the brief. Mm-hmm. Um, I was junior web designer. I was working with an art director at the time, but I always got the you know the end of the brief or the end of the requirement, and I was basically doing what I was being told to do yeah uh, mm-hmm. and I think I already found it quite frustrating so I wanted to be the person behind me that was actually giving me the brief yeah. mm-hmm. and you know being in touch with the client so I switched right. and I, I applied for an internship in a large web agency in Paris and from there I uh, started as um, a junior project manager junior project manager project manager project manager right. yeah so that was also you were able to use some of your business background and knowledge from your from your studies there yes uh does you know in agencies nothing is really like organized the way it is in a startup like um i think it was also 20 years ago so you didn't have that distribution of tasks that you could have with the same efficiency that you have in a startup so mm-hmm. i was basically a project manager and uh you know a key account manager at the same time right and mm-hmm. all these sort of things. Yeah. So you were. So you started basically as an intern in product in project management, and then you grew quite fast in the in the company, right? And you were also doing this account management, and you got to the level of director there in the, yes. in the agency, right? Yes, we were very lucky. Like uh, 
at that time in that agency specifically it grew up very very quick so when i joined the agency there were 150 people and it grew even outside of france into europe to up to 1500 people um mostly mm-hmm. by acquisition uh but okay. nevertheless um in me i joined um, the uk in 2007 mm-hmm. uh first um for um like a a loss to profit mission, which is not really fun. It's basically the agency is losing money. Help us understand why and uh, kind of fix it. So it's definitely not okay. the best mission I've ever been given. Um, mm-hmm. But it was very interesting, um, you know, to understand like the the function, like from scratch, how that agency was working, those people. It was not the best way to be introduced to new people as well, because you're basically asking them, how do you do that? Like, what do you, you know, mm-hmm. what are you spending on this? And how, like, how do we do this project? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then I came back to France. I uh, wanted to go back to the UK, but basically they wanted me on another mission in France. And actually what happened is like two months later, one of the director in the UK agency resigned. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, she's still a very talented person. Uh, she's now, um, head of, uh, she's CEO of Ogilvy in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. and she was like managing like tremendous amount of, uh, projects and clients. And, uh, and then, so the fact that her leaving was a real issue. So I went there to take, uh, part of her f- position and, and had the agency on that. So I went back to the UK. All right. And then basically right after right after that experience you started your own company right yeah what happened is that? it was 2007 mm-hmm. um so i don't even think we had the iphone yet um so it was yeah. right at that time and mm-hmm. um i'd been working on the internet for a while um and the, the original feeling well, there were two actually there was one which was I don't think agencies are efficient because basically you resell the same thing all the time. You're going to build a website uh, and actually you're going to build and sell another website on the client, but you're going to do everything from scratch because basically what you're selling is people's mm-hmm. time. Uh, so the more time you sell, the more margin you make. And that, right. it was a time as well where there was no website builders or anything. So everything mm-hmm. was coded from scratch. Yeah. Um, there's very few frameworks Were you also around. coding? Or no, just... I played around with a little bit with um, action scripts at the mm-hmm. time uh, okay. with Flash, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, did a bit of HTML. Okay. Uh, but no, just some basics, right? Yeah. And uh, so those first frustration point, like I, I, I always wanted to do something and try to set it again uh, because mm-hmm. for me that's where you could iterate and 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 incrementally and add the product, add mm-hmm. value, uh, and and make something better and the second part which was like a bit weird but um actually my my co-founder at the time who was a developer in this agency and we left both with mm-hmm. that same id with that we felt restricted by the size of the screen it means we've had played with digital for a very long time and then uh it was always like a 14 you know inches 16 inches or like it was, the screens were smaller at the time as yeah. well and we thought like digital creativity could do much better than that big screens you know like bigger mm. um uh yeah so that's that was our, our two motivations right so uh, what what exactly was the um, what was the the startup about what was the product so Which with that in mind uh we basically both resigned one day mm-hmm. And decided to launch our own uh, adventure 
there was no real like idea at the time apart from the fact that we wanted to be creative on large screens and i and that was right. the beginning of multi-touch I don't even know if you're multi-touch. Like, yeah, so so like the f the phone being able to, being able to click on two points on the on the screen at the same time. Exactly, mm -hmm. and it wasn't even a phone at the time because before the iPhone, uh, you had to buy a, basically a layer you would put on top of a screen, and mm -hmm. then on that screen, then you could have different touch points. Right, and depending on the technology, you could have one, two, four, ten infinite right. and there was actually a real boom at the technology at this time where a lot of companies uh were creating new overlays new screens new so it was very exciting and you mm -hmm. could you could uh put all those screens together to make a bigger one yeah. um and we we actually liked that uh so we just decided to play around and explore in terms of uh ui and ux what we could do so we designed different interfaces mm -hmm. um that would allow up to six or eight people to interact with the same software at the same time. Uh, because usually what happened is that those screens, they were embedded in the table, and then that table, people would gather around, and then mm -hmm. you would uh, you would actually play with the same software. Um, so we started like that, um, and me, I was going around to try and create partnerships and, and, um, and, you know, see what was the demand for that type of product. And we ended up going two directions. One direction was very creative because we partnered with a company called 1.0 in, the, um, in the UK, which is, uh, basically a festival for, uh, motion graphic designers. So it's, okay. it's motion very graphic. Neat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's um, animation mm -hmm. and uh, illustration, but animated and all that sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, they're very creative people. Uh, and so we developed a relationship with them. And mm -hmm. I also went for the other end of the spectrum, which was like, okay, where do we have volume? And so I looked at how those screens were used, where they were shipped, we were shipping them, we were making them, how they were distributed. Um, and then uh, we ended up looking at all those companies that sell basically screens for digital signage. For digital? Digital signage. So basically it's mm. the industry of um, outdoor screens. So all okay. the TVs okay. you see everywhere in bars, in airports, mm -hmm. in hotels, in restaurants, in malls, yeah. they basically have a software behind it that manages the content. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so in those two directions. Um With one that they went really well, we won several prizes, and then we actually managed to create uh, a showcase our best interface for their launch party in London in Shoreditch mm -hmm. in 2009, I think. Okay. It was really cool, gave it a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we started to go more uh, traditional, hardcore uh, utility software for digital signage. Right. Yeah, so what on that first part that you mentioned, what was exactly the... Utility, what was it applied to? So we went two ways. One way was like, uh, because basically the, the two main markets for the screens were office and, um, you know, like external locations like hospitality, uh, malls, airports mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, so we first explore um, a solution for presentation where you could actually put your PDF, your slides and have them in the office and basically... Uh, be able to manipulate digital documents on a table and stuff. Okay. And the other route we went uh, down was uh, a wayfinding software, meaning you arrive in a location in an airport, in a mall, you're looking for a shop, then 
you know, you find your right. way, we show you the way. Mm -hmm. cool. So the two, two main software we, uh, we developed. Mm -hmm. And there, basically, you took the product person role, right? How yes. You, you had like a bit of marketing business, also project management background. Uh, was it already called product at that time? Probably in the US, mm -hmm. <laughs> but not in Europe. I basically, it's much later that I realized that I was doing product. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I was just um, helping specify what we should build right. after having talked to clients mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, shared it with the team. And so it was... Right. By all You're means, product. Already but. doing like discovery work, defining requirements, passing it over to the... Yeah, but it was quite easy. For the, it was also like a relatively small company. We were yeah. like uh, 20 people at max. Uh, so um, what happened is I would be customer facing and then I would be in the office with the engineers, mm -hmm. um, with my co-founder. Were you also taking like the design role or did you have someone in the team dedicated to that no yeah, yeah we had a designer Design. uh my co-founder is a, a very talented uh, developer mm -hmm. uh with a, a very good eye for a design and was very into it as well and he had um a very good network mm -hmm. so we would ask different people to help us depending on uh the requirements uh mm -hmm. people which are you know like uh, more comfortable in one topic than another but we would always have uh, a professional design Right. So, yeah, you were mentioning that you had a super talented team of around 20 people. What challenges did you face building that team? Did so, you already had experience with that before? No, I had experience with managing people. So um, I, I had managed more people in my previous job. I don't right. think I learned that in the best settings because the first agency I worked with was pretty tough in terms mm -hmm. of management. Yeah. And... I would say I was a very demanding person at the time. I'm, I'm now uh, more, uh, I can empathize more. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it was with a lot of freelancers. Uh, so it was not a permanent team. Right. So uh, you were already used to that managing people working in different projects and yeah, different teams. Cool. Cool. And what about the, the second company? So... I mean, you had this successful exit, right? You you sold the, the company. We um, did sell the company. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, uh, it was a set of IP to our main distributor that had uh, you know a fair amount of business with us mm -hmm. and decided to acquire the IP of the software. Right. Um, and then basically right after, if I'm not mistaken, you started another company, right? Yes. Uh, How so was that? So the other company was, uh, was, I mean, I was not planning to sell the first company in the first place. It just happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the second uh, company started like a two months uh, later. Basically, we had a, a big client, which was um, Jesse Deco, which is uh, one of the okay. biggest player in, in um, digital signage, outdoor, out-of-home okay. advertising, which is like clear channel, this type of people. Mm -hmm. They do all the... Um, screens and sign in the streets and the bus stops everywhere right and uh i developed a good relationship with a cio and uh, he called me one day and he says like look we 
Also, that maybe like for context, it was a time where uh, Jesse Doko was decreasing the amount of paper they were selling because basically they also sell all the posters you see in the streets. And then in 2010, they were actually increasingly replacing those posters by, by screens. Uh, screens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what it meant for them in that instead of having a poster up for a week and then set basically that location for a week, they would have a screen where they could sell by the second. And right. so the whole business model was changing. And it means that the way their salespeople would sell would change and means those salespeople would need a new UI to book uh, those um, those new uh, advertising and sell them. Mm-hmm. And he told me like, look, we have a good team, we have a good development team, but we don't know anything about UX, UI. And then uh, we would like to redevelop our internal booking system. Uh, can you uh, help me and basically put a design team together and overview, help me overview what developers are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so basically the software for the the internal people of the company to manage the... To book the advertising outdoors, by the right. second instead of mm-hmm. just, uh, days or weeks. Yeah. Cool, cool. So that was the, the product that you ended up developing and then you realized maybe this is not the only company looking for this. I can sell it to other, so to other companies. Not, not this one exactly, but mm-hmm. uh, what happened is that um, I ended up with a team and uh, knowledge in developing uh, sales UI. Mm-hmm. And I saw there might be other companies out there that wants to do sales tools. Mm-hmm. And I do have like a good use case. I can I can showcase and I can explain what I do. So I called another client, ex-client of mine. And I said, look, look, I'm doing this. Uh, do you have any needs? And he said, yes, absolutely. We have different challenges, but we need an app that does this, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's kind of like snowballed into more clients. Right. So you basically create that second company a bit by accident, right? Yeah. That's why it was called the Hiccup. Hiccup, really? Yeah. That was, was the was origin of the day. Yeah. Cool. Super interesting. Um, yeah. What's the professional achievement that you're most proud of? I think to date, it's probably the, the sale of this second company to uh, Showpad. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was, uh, and that that second company, you already had the plan to to sell it, or also was by surprise? Because basically, you had two successful exits. To you sold two of your companies. That's like a a goal for a lot of uh, founders. And, and, yeah, and I think leaders. we should put things in context as well because mm-hmm. they were relatively small exits, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, uh, yeah, I think the game is different today, and I see it every day uh, with, as my role, in my role as a coach or a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but indeed, it was. Uh, I'm very happy with all of that. And um, and what I realized in the second company, there was a pattern starting to emerge that my go-to market would usually go- be to piggyback on bigger companies because I knew that I I wanted to reach like. A relatively big scale quite quickly and then i didn't mm-hmm. have the the means to do like you know huge marketing or anything like that so what i would do is i would find a player that already has scale and i would look at what they are missing um mm-hmm. and from there i would test and try test you know and, and fail or test and learn stuff mm-hmm. and then somehow there would one that would work and uh right. and we would bet everything on that and then we would 
very quickly reach scale. And then the idea is then to uh, reach other company like that partner to uh, to gain uh, more more customers. And I did right, both right. for both mm-hmm. companies. And the reason both companies were acquired is because every time the partner was like, wow, what you're doing is basically complementary to what missing. we are doing. Mm-hmm. We need it. So either we make it or we buy you. And there's a simple calculation to make, which is like, mm-hmm. how long is it going to take us? How much business we are going not to close because we don't have that now and blah, blah, blah. Right, right. So that was the... The reason, so, but in that second exit, you 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 joined the company and you stayed there, right? Yes. So the, the the first exit, because it was an American company and we were a French company, they were very wary of acquiring a French company because of the French working laws. So mm-hmm. they told us right from the from the start that we're just going to get the IP of the software. And then the funny thing, they actually sent it to China. So mm-hmm. my co-founder had to do a six months transition with Chinese teams. Uh, yeah. so yeah, but me, I was free <laughs> and, um, and then the second company was very different because, uh, Chopin at the time was like, uh, like the leader in sales enablement. Uh, they were one of the big scale up in, uh, in Europe. There were not that, that many in SaaS, uh, B2B, and they were very well implemented in the U S market and they bought the product and the vision. So they were like, we like what you're doing and it's, it works for us. It works for our clients. And we, uh, yeah, we want you to come and with your team to develop it with us. So I still have some of my teams working there. Mm-hmm. So your team from Hiccup still at Chopin? Yeah. Cool. And what was your, your role there at Chopin? What were you, you doing? So when I joined Showpad, uh, we signed the, the sale on the day of Christmas 2016. And then we joined, I think, in early February or end of January. Um, and what they did is basically they created a squad for to integrate our product, uh, where our engineers would go and then our designer would, uh, would work. And, uh, and basically their product really took over. And me, I acted as uh, a non-exec advisor for six months um, because it wasn't clear where I was going to help. I I learned later that apparently the, the co-founder wanted me to do different things. So one wanted me in marketing, the other one in product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually they came to me and they gave me the choice. And mm-hmm. I, I decided to put the product. So and why was that choice? Why? Why did you choose product over marketing? Since you're also your background was more marketing uh, on marketing, right? Yeah, I think I did an overdose of marketing in my young mm. days. Um, right. And and marketing can be very fluffy. So the only marketing I would actually do would be mm-hmm. product marketing. But marketing for marketing is not my thing. I'm not really into, I'm not good at acquisition or like uh, events or communication in general. Right. So, yeah, a product for me was clear that the value was there. And if you wanted to create any value in a company, you had to work in product. Mm-hmm. And how do you think your... I mean, not that the other department do not yeah. create value. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the that. others yeah. are useless. Right? No, 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 that's not what I said. Um, how do you think that your background in marketing and design has helped you as a product person? For me, I've always work with those three components, which are design, mm-hmm. engineering, and business. Because since my first job, I'm dealing with the three 
skills, mm -hmm. not within me, but with my team. So right. they are the triptych for me I always uh, used. Uh, I like to, f you know, I think I have an eye for design and, and uh, uh, all of that, but I do recognize it as a very serious professional skill and I do not do design by myself. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. I understand uh, its role. I don't do it, even though I, I used to do it because I think like I've stopped very long time ago. I'm not, uh, you know, as skilled as uh, the peop some people are today. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's it's uh, it's very important. I don't know if um, that helps me today. My understanding of coding and technology has really helped me because. Even though I'm not an engineer, I do understand uh, all you the discussions. Discuss, right? mm -hmm. Yeah, at Chopal, I did um, overview the launch of uh, their first SDK, which is pretty technical for a non-technical person. But mm -hmm. as long as we have good communication with the engineering team, there's never been uh, any issue. And I think that the, the main influence, like I would say, outside of product that helped me to do product was sales. Sales. Yeah, mm. because uh, I've always been customer facing, and uh, and the goal has always been to understand what people want and why they want it. Right. Um, because so there was implication. The, the real need and what exactly do the people need and not what they are just asking, but going deeper and understanding what they actually need. Yeah, deep down, right? Yeah, yeah. And originally, it was more of a cost per perspective because I needed to do a budget. And then mm. for me, my idea was like, okay, you know, how can we make the budget as accurate as possible? Uh, so mm -hmm. we try to understand that very, very precisely. But I think they helped me later. Yeah, cool. Um, that's not the most obvious, but for sure. Uh, I mean, the relation between sales and product is not the, the most obvious, but it's definitely... No, it's usually counterintuitive because you're very... You, when you're in sales, you are opinionated and then you need to convince someone. So it's a very mm -hmm. different speech. Uh, where in product, you basically... I guess it depends on the way that you're doing sales. I guess that, I mean, I'm not an expert in sales and maybe it's not safe to, to get into too much <laughs> the sales discussions. But I think that you can do sales in different ways. You can either like basically ask what the person wants and then go back to to your internal team and say build this because this person asked for this or you can go a bit deeper trying to understand like the not only what they are asking but their motivations and pains and mm. their real needs and then yeah that that that's where product starts and and covering that and trying to translate that into possible solutions so yeah or discovery part but I think sales can also do a, a little bit of this discovery, right? Absolutely. I'm mm -hmm. a huge advocate to train all customer-facing teams to discover. Right, right. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to that. Before, what is your favorite thing about working in products? I like to make things. Make things. Create things. Mm -hmm. I think mean, creating an offering creating a product, creating a solution that cool. helps and like, you know, that people use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The challenging question. So if you want to make things, why did you move a bit back? I mean, I'm not sure, but from what I understand now, you're more on a coaching, advising 
a bit less hands-on. Don't you feel that you're getting away from that part of building the things yourself? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so what happened is like when I left Chopard in 2019, I took a bit of time to think about what I wanted to do. Then COVID hit and mm -hmm. then it started to be uh, a bit, uh, yeah, I mean, everything changed. Um, and so from there, I originally worked on my own project. Um, I started to create that carbon offset platform for automotive enthusiasts, which is a challenge in itself. What what's the? It's a carbon offset platform. It's called Chrome Carbon, hmm. and okay. the idea is that um, for the people who are really passionate about driving and cars, um, I mean, it's important for them to realize that and that CO two is a byproduct of the passion, and then there are ways that they can help. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring that awareness and those solutions to them in that specific um, context. Uh, so yeah. I did create that offer. And it was definitely for me a move outside of my comfort zone because we're talking B2C, we're talking community. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still running uh, to this date. I don't give it uh, as much um, time mm -hmm. as I should. It's a complex uh, uh, endeavor because climate is very polarizing. What is the, the name? If people Chrome want to Carbon. find it You're online. You're going to find it's chromecarbon.cc. Okay, mm. cool. We'll check it out for and sure. It will be relaunched in, in the new year with uh, some Portuguese content. Yeah. Because now that I live here, I want to bring it here mm -hmm. and develop the community here. Cool. Super cool. Looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, it, so, yeah, you were saying of how you moved a bit back from the, the building things. How did you got involved in investing in other companies? Um, so, yeah, that same year I launched Chrome Carbon. Like a friend of mine introduced me to uh, an accelerator in Paris, saying like they look for mentors, uh, they have some mm -hmm. really cool startups um, going there, and maybe I could help. Um, so I started to work with them, and I still work with them to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's how I I. I basically started to to mentor and to um, and to work with um, uh, with different companies instead of creating my own. Mm -hmm. I think for me there are two different drivers in what I do. There's one driver which is I like to create and make things, and there's another driver which is I like to work in a team, and okay. uh, I can get very involved if the team is good. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, at the first part, it can be a little bit of, a, at the beginning at least, a bit of a lonely journey, uh, solopreneur, entrepreneur, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, and then I found that other side by just like working with other startups and mentoring them and helping them early stage. Um, right. So I do actually enjoy that very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also by investing, I guess you get a bit more skin in the game and more, you become more invested than you're just, um, mentor or an advisor doing hours. Of yeah, work, right? well, that's a funny one because everyone is often the startups tell me that we like, I oh, know we want people to have skin in the game, want people to uh, be money in the company because basically from what I do and how I help them, mm -hmm. um, there is a part of it which requires more cadence, more intensity than just an advising. You know, just like being there once a month or once every two months. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and for me to date, like my most valuable resource is my time. 
It's not money. Mm-hmm. So if I put money in a company, it's because I trust the company to do good with that money. Mm-hmm. And if I put my time in a company, it's because I think they need uh, upskilling or they need support uh, to get where they want to be. Right. Um, and actually, in between the two, the one that is the most valuable to me, which is the most uh, scarce, is my time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, skimming the game with money, yes, but skimming the game with time, even more. Right. Makes total sense. And what type of companies or industries or company sizes, what type of company attracts you the most? Um, so I'm lucky enough to be able to work with both because when I say both, I say both end of the spectrum, like super early stage, mm-hmm. uh, like seed series A to uh, super scale up like series C, D, E um, and through two different vehicles. Uh, so the mm-hmm. first one is the accelerator we talked about. Um, and I, I do work with a lot of, uh, weirdly, a lot of introtech. I, I didn't plan that, but I work with introtech. I work with uh, PropTech, I work uh, with B2B, um, mm-hmm. the old SaaS. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave me a bit of climate tech as well, but okay. uh, I'm but a bit Can reluctant. you name a favorite type? Or type of? Like, you, you mentioned that you're, you've worked with both uh, early stage, more yeah. growth stage also different industries and different types of product but do you have a, a favorite one like a thing that attracts you the most from the product they are building mm-hmm. yeah um, there are some very smart solutions uh, so I, I have a coach and I'm an investor in a company called Tulip uh, mm-hmm. which do embedded insurance for rentals uh, with a focus on uh, bicycles um, right. So embedded insurance is a lot of traction at the moment. There's a lot of big players that are actually uh, launching themselves more in B2C than in B2B2C. That's because that's what Tulip is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really, really great people. Uh, Amory, the founder, is like a super smart guy. Uh, so I love to, to work with, um, with people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I very briefly... Uh, <laughs> it's funny enough. It's a, it's, a, it's a mentoring mission I've had, but like... I haven't spent so much time with her because she's, they are so busy. It's a company called Believe in, um, in France and they do, uh, they dematerialize uh, the, um, the tickets you get when you buy something. Like there'll be a, a law, I don't know if it's a European law or a French law, but by 2023, you would not be able to give a ticket anymore when you sell something. Like printed tickets. Printed ticket. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the, the QR code and they give it on your phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the CEO, she's super, like, young. She's 21 or something. Hmm. Uh, but super smart people. Uh, so I like the product. I like what they do. Um, I've worked as well so, uh, with a company called Pimster. It's doing, like, a, uh, it's super interesting in terms of, of uh, territory and marketing because they do, like, the afterlife of a product. They basically digitalize um, the, uh, um, you know, product explanation. The, the guide, the printed guide you get with any mm-hmm. product when you buy it that yeah. nobody reads, mm-hmm. but they make a digital version of it. And, and simplified as well. Yeah, and interactive mm-hmm. videos. I make so cool. much sense and it's, it's so much to be done there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the territory, actually, the, the, the mission of the company can be really large. And so there's a lot to play with. It's super interesting. Cool. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. 
more in depth to, to product discovery, which I know is one of your main focus within the, the realm of product and product management. There are some initiatives that don't require as much effort in discovery. Um, do you have like a rule of thumb as to what initiatives or features uh, need a proper quote-unquote discovery process? Hmm. Um, for me, the question is like, do you know enough? Hmm. How do you know that you know enough? But then it's for, uh, <laughs> that's, the thing is, even if you conduct like uh, a proper discovery, chances are very high that you're not going to get all the information you would like to have. We don't, especially in product, we don't live in that perfect world where we can get everything. Mm -hmm. Or you basically do discovery permanently, which is not what you want. Mm -hmm. So there is always going to be that amount of information that you have to say, okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. So the point is that um, you could always know more, but right. as a product person, you have to make that call at some point. You say, I know enough. Mm-hmm. And it's entirely up to you. And that's the beauty right. of being a product person is because you have a lot of autonomy there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what makes a product person. Is that so you, like having the common sense or like the... And sometimes having the courage, you know, mm-hmm. so, okay, that's it. I'm going to stop here. I have enough information and uh, I'm going to, uh, yeah. I'm going to progress uh, mm-hmm. because I need to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. for me, the original question, if to come back to your point, when do you need to conduct a discovery? Knowing that there are two different types of discovery and then the two main spaces you explore are opportunity and solution. Mm-hmm. So it's not because you know the opportunity that you can't explore the solutions. Uh, but then, yeah, whether it's about what opportunity to address or what solution to build is do I know enough to pick one and if no mm-hmm. what do i need to learn and then what how do i learn and right. uh, and that's when you start discovery but then you need to time box it and you need to have a clear objective mm-hmm. what kind of uh, objective do you do you set on a discovery process uh, it can be very different depending if you're exploring like uh, again the solution space and mm-hmm. and the um, or the opportunity space. It can be um, you know the traditional model of saying okay I've got a, a business outcome and a product outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, they are more related to possibly like your OKR model, like a more quarterly um, assignment. Uh, but they're gonna be even even though let's say for example you work in a squad. That squad um, needs to contribute to a business objective. And then you decide that this product metrics is the way you're going to measure success, your contribution to that, mm-hmm. your, you know, the success of your contribution to that business objective. So you got your business objective, your product objective, and then you got your, basically your scope. What are we going to do to move that, that needle? Um, and then within that, there might be a lot of iteration of discovery. Uh, there might be some different cycles and every cycle we're going to have an objective. And um, so, yeah, the objective is basically like, what do I need to know? And, and, and what's my measure of success? How do I know that I got that information mm-hmm. enough to make a decision? Right. So that objective can be very uh, varied in the, in the form. It's mm-hmm. basically answering a question. And then when you, from one question to another, then you make all the knowledge required to make mm-hmm. an informed decision. Yeah, so that's maybe one thing that distinguishes good product people from great product people. It's knowing when you know enough, right? 
I'll, I'll making that judgment call mm-hmm. like yourself yeah. because what I see the most in my coaching uh, job because we were talking about that you know the early stage company but then what we didn't talk about is I also um, through uh, the BPI which is the French Bank for Investment I met some very talented product people uh, that have created um, a company called uh, Panache and mm-hmm. Panache basically uh, help upskill teams, so we're talking scale-ups, uh, squads, um, to the art of discovery, mm-hmm. and even more. And, and, then, and then I joined them as, a, as an external, but I supported them, and, and today I do coaching actually with them, so that, that gives me exposure to also like large scale-ups, um, you know, how they function and like what are the challenges. And so it, it basically brings me back a lot to what I did at Showpad or... Mm-hmm. Um, or what I did at EasyWork, which are two scale-ups I work for. Um, right. And for me, the key thing I see is that a lot of those PMs, they're a little bit uh, left alone and, uh, and, and they don't necessarily have the clearest outcomes to work with. And mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest challenge. And um, that's why now I'm, I'm more and more advocating trying to move from... Um, Coaching discovery in isolation, mm-hmm. meaning taking a team and upskilling it to discovery. Um, I think this goes with making sure that the management, uh, the lead, or even the, the head of, mm-hmm. are in a mindset to manage by outcomes. Right. Because if you give a team an output, saying like you have to deliver this, Mm-hmm. then the scope for discovery is very different. Limited. You're going to do solution discovery because you already right. know what you're going to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes limited. It's basically about refining the the requirement from this stakeholder, right? Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. Like a magical can say that you should spend 80% of your time in solution discovery, not in, in opportunity discovery. And that mm-hmm. makes sense. But the problem I see is that with that kind of like output-driven uh, management, then the team don't really know why they're doing what they're doing, and they're mm-hmm. unable to link it back to a business m- metric, yeah. and so they don't know what their contribution is, and if you don't know what your contribution is, really, then it's very hard for you to contribute more. Uh, and and I think subsequently, you end up contributing less. Yeah, so also eventually demotivating and not feeling part of a of the bigger thing that you should feel part of, right? Yeah, that disconnect can happen too, mm-hmm. definitely. So yeah, more and more I'm moving to management by outcomes, which right. I think is the real enabler. So you tr- you as an individual trying to move from coaching specific product teams in discovery to coach more like also management uh, people in the company to do a different way of managing. Yeah. And those are discussions that happen because when we gather with the client and then we look back at, uh, for example, discovery coaching we've been doing, um, you know, we're very, with good experience, team are upskilled, they know more than they used to, they can, uh, they feel autonomous in, um, in repeating uh, a cycle of discovery on their own. Um, and they, they have the knowledge, they have the, the, the basis, but what we realize is that they're not really pursuing the right outcome. And that mm-hmm. doesn't come from them, really. 
that has to be a discussion between the, the head of and themselves. And so we want to enable the discussion. The, even the clients realize that we need to do this. So I think it's... it's uh, Have you faced the situation where management don't understand that the product team is also responsible for coming up with these opportunities or we're lucky enough to only have uh, to be involved in companies that actually understand what product management is all about no uh, definitely faced uh, the first mm -hmm. case yeah um It's a different, like, uh, if you're not familiar with how product work, you can't ask people that don't know about it to really embrace it or understand from mm -hmm. right off the bat. Many founders, they have the very, you know, the smart people, they have like a clear ID and they say mm -hmm. like, this is the direction. This, this is what, is I, what want. I want. Exactly. Uh, and then you come, when you come back to them and you're like, well, you know, like, mm -hmm. first of all, you have to go back to them and like, okay, this is what you want. What does that achieve? Mm -hmm. What are we trying to achieve? What is yeah. our measure of success? And what type of advice do you have for, for instance, a product manager in a company like that, that is being trapped by just building things that the founder or the, like some leader is telling them to build? What type of advice do you have for them? I mean... Uh, Quit the company? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some point, there's only so much you can do. So mm -hmm. I think if you think about your own career, you have to be in the right environment. Uh, mm -hmm. Product is not something you do in isolation at a PM level. Uh, mm -hmm. Product is enabled by an organization, really, I think. Um, so what you can, but that doesn't mean that you cannot learn from what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important, especially if you start uh, your career, there's a lot you can learn, there's a lot you can do. Um, you know, products, you got the three phase, you got discovery, you got planning, and you got delivery. Mm -hmm. um, just in delivery itself, there's a lot that can be learned, a lot that can be done. Yeah. Um, planning as well. Discovery, you can spend a lot of time discovery in the solution space that even if we ask you to deliver something, you can deliver that thing in the best possible way, yeah. uh, which is like a huge part of also uh, being a PM. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when it comes to what are you doing, what, why are you doing what you're doing, and then how you can contribute to business and blah, blah, blah. And if this doesn't really, uh, you know, connect, click, click then mm -hmm. yeah, you might want to look for an organization that is more mm -hmm. product-driven. Empowering, right. Mm -hmm. Cool. You were mentioning before the, the role of sales and also how it influenced your, your role in, in product. And I guess you're a big advocate for other areas of the company also to contribute to, to discovery, right? So how do you see the, the role of like sales, customer success in product work? Um, so we, I think as product people, we want to hear from our clients mm -hmm. quite often. As often as possible, we want to know, you know, how they live with the product, how they use the product, you know, what are they missing, what do they like, and everything. And it's, there is so much we can do in terms of interviewing, in terms of being out there. Uh, so the organization is like that system that can actually do that for us. Um, if you took at, if you, you know, look at CSM, they, they spend their days with the customer making sure they're happy, they're going to upsell, they're not going to churn, blah, blah, blah. If you look at professional services, they're looking at creative ways to help clients 
use the client in better ways. Mm -hmm. If you look at pre-sales, they are here to find the, the gaps in the product or like explain to the client how they can use the product to do what they want, or the prospect mm -hmm. in that case. Yeah. Um, so all those departments, I think, are uh, in the best possible position to collect feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem, if if there is a problem, because there's not always a problem, but that when there is one, is that mm -hmm. they are not trained to ask for the motivation. They are basically doing the job and hearing feedback, and then they come back to the company saying, like, they want this, or mm -hmm. they want that. Yeah. And actually, for not that much more training, that you can help them, you can upskill them, empower them to go further and ask more questions and say, okay, mm -hmm. why do you want this? Yeah. What problem mm -hmm. does that solve to you? What benefits do you get from it? And then they're going to come back with much uh, richer feedback, yeah. which are much more actionable by the product team. It's also going to increase alignment because we're aligned on problems and opportunities, not on solution, because we never really align on solution because, it's good, mm -hmm. you know, um, not that we never align on solution, but if, if those departments come back with solution, it's a challenge for product because mm -hmm. we have to go back to the root of the problem anyway. Yeah. So I think it increases alignment and it makes the company work better and it helps so everyone understand what product does, how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's positive on many, many levels. Right. And what are some typical challenges in making this collaboration happen? So you mentioned already that... Uh, Training them on this a little bit is a helpful way. Uh, what are some blockers that you have found in in companies you've worked with? Uh, so first of all, I wanted to say something. So when I say train them, so there is maybe some context to be uh, added here in the sense that uh, the more and more I work in discovery and, uh, um, and in product, I realize the, the absolute crucial impact that UX researcher have in a company. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're talking about scaling, uh, um, you know, product-driven culture or um, discovery processes and all of that. And when UX researchers scale their processes and, and basically give the toolbox to the product people on how to gather insight, organize them, exploit them, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. There is part of it that they can be done autonomously and some of that work that would need a UX researcher to be there and help. So I think I just wanted to bring that um, nuance in the mm -hmm. sense that not every research can be done autonomously. Like it's a real job. It needs those UX researchers. Yeah. But there is some simple uh, thing that can be done and you can train people. Now, you know what, like, I think one of the main barriers of doing that, meaning training other departments on discovery and more accurately on interviewing, because that's what we're talking about, mm -hmm. is fear. It's what? Fear? Fear. A lot, of, mm -hmm. a lot of companies are scared of talking too much to their clients. They're like, it's like, if I've seen that a lot in some situations, like, no, no, they're buying, it's, it's working well. Just don't 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 go there. Don't talk to them. <laughs> don't bother them yeah, too much. Exactly. And some mm. many companies, especially in B2B, we have the buyer and we have the user. Mm -hmm. So there are different people, uh, and you don't have some access to all of them. Um, 
And it doesn't take much. Sometimes it's like one person that actually just goes to the CSM, say, okay, which accounts can I talk to? Which accounts should I not talk to? Oh, these people are happy, you can go. Mm-hmm. So it's alignment, communication, and going beyond the fear that you can break something, break a relationship and potentially damage business. And actually mm-hmm. what happens uh, most of the time is that you enhance business. It's getting better because you're getting a closer relationship with your customers mm-hmm. and you don't end up with a huge list of features to make, you end up with a better understanding of uh, what your customer wants. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes total sense. And I mean, maybe just, I, I've experienced it a little bit, um, just doing shadowing, uh, like as a PM or as a UX designer, shadowing a salesperson on a sales call or yep. like a customer success call weekly meeting or whatever with a client um it can help you uncover a lot of of interesting stuff and even though sometimes we may be afraid that it may hurt the relationship i think it enhances the relationship most of the times that you have like this person that's interested in learning more from me that's valuing me as a client absolutely so i think that's an important thing and then like as a product person i've been on quite a few uh in product role as well in pre-sales uh, meetings. And I think it also helps, uh, as you said, so it, it values the prospect or the customer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes it also helps close the deal because yeah. they have someone in the room which is not necessarily here to convince them that they have the solution, but mm-hmm. someone who is like really interested in their problem. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. The empathy there, it's important one. Um, from your... Many hats as an investor, coach, advisor, leader. What's the role that you enjoy the most, or you that you have enjoyed the most? I think coaching is is uh, is very very rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's challenging in the sense that in Europe we don't have the culture of coaching, um, and then if you look at the US, almost every leader has a as a coach, mm-hmm. someone that's supporting them, helping them. In in Europe, like advice is something you get for free. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit of a challenge, um, but it's extremely rewarding because you have the gratification of uh, helping someone grow, uh, which I, I really, really enjoy. And mm-hmm. as a coach, you're not a manager. You're not there to tell them what to do. You are, mm-hmm. You're basically helping them to find the resources to do what they're doing better. Yeah. It's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And... And at the same time, because I coach um, squads or like uh, multiple PM in, in the same company, then you get to have a collective impact. And so I really like that because we deliver on business. Mm-hmm. And so you've got both the human aspect where you're helping people grow and you can also have impact an actual impact business. on business. Mm-hmm. And so that's my two favorite things. Cool. That's that's amazing. In that, it's, it's quite interesting. Actually, I... I had a friend not in the, the US, in the UK, that everyone from lead to C-level have a coach that's independent outside the company and that's helping them grow as a, as a leader. And I found that super amazing and I haven't seen that in Portugal. Um, I mean, I know some companies have that kind of thing, but it's not that common. And I, I think for some 
maybe more traditional leaders that even they even see it as yeah I, I don't need someone to to teach me because i'm the boss and i know what i'm doing yeah and if i have a coach it's because probably i'm not that good and they they value that but i think it's it can be super powerful it's a cultural thing yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's uh, anglo-saxon countries do it much better it's embedded in, in the mm-hmm. way they see business do you think there's a, a way to to accelerate that to unlock that to make more companies see the value in it i'm 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 say i'm confident but i don't know if i'm that <laughs> confident but like I, i do believe that we are seeing uh, a different typology of founders it's mm-hmm. really changing like i've been working with founders so i've founded co-founded two companies myself 10 years ago And, and since then, I've, I've worked with more and more founders. And I think there is like a profile which is emerging, which is different from what it was 10 years ago. I see people like, you know, very much uh, listening mm-hmm. and getting a lot of advice and taking that advice. And, uh, and you know, um, so, yeah, I'm confident that uh, maybe we're new generation new generation that gonna... more embedded. Exactly. And all, you, if you look at it, like also all of the, the VCs and the funds, they, you know, they inherited the playbooks of the, of the U.S. investors. And like, because mm-hmm. when, when we're at Chopa and uh, so they have inside partners as the main uh, investors mm-hmm. and those guys, I'm, I'm, you know, they have a playbook to scale and it's, it's so impressive. Uh, and everything was very, very well done. And, uh, and I think like all of this is, that's what they want to see. And so it will become, I would not be surprised if it would become playbook, you know, that, uh, you actually should, you know, coach here, coach there mm-hmm. and not to defend what I'm doing, but in terms of, uh, when in an economic downturn, if you want to do more with what you have, it's actually also interesting to, train and coach the people you have to deliver like the best of what they can deliver cool that's what i'm trying to uh, explain to prospect at the moment <laughs> cool um all right we are, i think we are already more or less one hour through um so we'll start getting to our final questions um one thing i'm curious about is why did you decide to move to portugal Uh, it was, it was quite opportunistic. So, I mean, I always loved Lisbon. I came quite a few times, um, 2013, 2015, 2016. Um, I think that the, the city has a vibe. It was, um, uh, yeah, I re- really, really loved it. Mm-hmm. And then back in, uh, COVID time, like some friends of mine were leaving the UK. Um, mm. You know, we had Brexit, Brexit, COVID, everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, and they called me one day and they were like, um, Jude, you know, we, we, uh, we, um, you know, we're giving a flat back and, uh, we're going on a, on a world tour. And then at the beginning, they told me, oh, we're going to Tenerife. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I just like spent a month in Tenerife on the, at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. during lockdown. And I was like, ah, no. And, and then they called me back after and they're like, oh no, finally we're going to Lisbon. And I was like, Yeah, why not? And so we just rented an Airbnb all together uh, that summer. And I was working um, 
for scale up in Paris at the time. Um, so I was trying a bit, but um, and then yeah, and then it was really they, nice. They just stayed, <laughs> and they left, and I stayed. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But what do you think of the the Portuguese tech and startup scene? Did you already had a chance to to have contact with it, or you're still working mostly for companies outside Portugal? So I mostly work for companies outside Portugal, although I'm really trying to uh, get a deeper connection here. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been uh, working closely with um, Joao from Startup Lisboa. Mm -hmm. um, I've met uh, Ricardo from Betai. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been in different like dinners, events here and there. I think for yeah. 2023, I really would like to be more involved um, for two mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, first is I think it's a thriving environment which is developing very heavily mm -hmm. and very quickly so it's cool and second is because I just I don't want to leave somewhere and you know work somewhere else I think there's a lot to be done here um, Portugal's got a lot of talents a lot of very very good engineers uh, good PM people mm -hmm. and um, and there's a lot that can be done cool You're going to meet a lot of those cool people in the product weekend very soon. Perfect. Um, going to the to the really last five questions. Um, last five, love it. What do you think the world will look like in 50 years from now? Hot, hot. <laughs> in 50 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely going to be hot, uh, especially here. I was actually watching uh, some documentary recently and they're saying that uh, in 2050, London will have the weather of Barcelona mm. and Paris, the weather of Istanbul. Um, yeah. So that's why also I created so Cold you Carbon. See it mostly pessimistically in terms of environment and sustainability. You think we're not going to be able to reverse things or to oh no it's too late we it's, mm. uh, it's common knowledge that we, we can't reverse we can't i mean even if we're trying to um soak it uh um, mm. you know, suck it out of, out of the atmosphere um first of all like carbon capture is a very expensive technology mm -hmm. um so finding it at scale i think we haven't found really the way to do that mm -hmm. um countries are reluctant to really uh you know, like take drastic measures. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't, you know what? I think we can't change what's happening, but I don't necessarily think we have to be pessimistic about it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the grand scheme of things, Earth has been a rock before. It might be a rock mm -hmm. after. And so actually, it's still pretty good. Yeah, yeah. What we're, you know, what we're playing with is not Even necessarily. Even if it's 50 degrees Celsius, it's still pretty good compared with what. I mean, that what I'm trying point. to say is that Earth will still be there. Mm -hmm. We might not be there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but the planet will still, because a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to save the planet. I'm like, no, nah, basically just trying to save ourselves right now <laughs> because the planet, <laughs> the will, planet still will be there. Be there yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, um, and I think that's, that's what we should focus on. And so that's why I created Chrome Carbon as well. I didn't mm -hmm. really create it out of, um, what can I say that? Like uh, being business minded, but mm -hmm. really because I think All of us, each of us, if we have a skill, or if there is something we know how to do that can help act, then we should do it. And so I was like, okay, what do I know how to do? I know how to do uh, digital offering and uh, what do I like? I like cars. 
and say, how can I, you know, bring that knowledge and convince more automotive enthusiasts to offset their emission? Mm-hmm. And so far, we've planted more than 6,000 trees and offset 400 and something tons of CO2. So Amazing. it's not much, but that's my initiative that I took. Yeah. And then if we all do that, then, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we also know that not everyone will do it. To, and there's like big companies that will like on one single decision hurt the efforts of thousands. Right. Yeah, and after there is war, there is, a, you know, like we are yeah. starting coal plants because mm-hmm. we're missing gas, so it's complicated. Yeah, let's go to a more positive note. <laughs> <laughs> What's one lesson from product management that you think everyone, even outside of product and tech, should know? Asking questions, making, um, informing our decisions and mm. our opinions. Um What I loved about product and one of the reasons that made me go to product is that within a company, it's the less opinionated Mm -hmm. department. Like if you work in sales, if you work in customer success, or if you look at, and again, I have have, have no prejudice against any of those departments. (laughs) I love working with them. They're essential and vital to any company. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's true that when you get into arguments or like when you have to defend like a point of view, they are less informed in the way um, mm-hmm. sometimes take decisions. And that's by nature. Um, and in, in product, by nature, to make a decision, you have to inform more, it. Yeah, and be more naive. So like, and humble in a way that I and don't like know, to, I need to get the data to know. Exactly, like, you need mm-hmm. to take that stance. So mm-hmm. I think like, you know, by nature, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And actually we've looked at especially the people from Panache, they've looked at expanding discovery uh, to the other departments. Because what does discovery allows you to do and more UX research techniques and interviewing uh, is basically making more informed decision. And then if you bring that methodology and knowledge to just the, 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 the fact of taking a more informed decision, then you can bring it to anything. You can have, like in sales, take a more informed decision. At like C-level business, take a more informed decision. Mm -hmm. In support, take a more informed decision. And um, so, yeah, Mm -hmm. something you can bring outside of product for sure. Cool. And what are your your three favorite books? Or three books that you would recommend? In product? Not necessarily, but yeah. You can give at least one in product. Uh, so because of what I do, I tend to read, uh, more in product. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the, the, the books in product, it's going to be like possibly the recent ones, but I've read and I really like, so you got radical focus, uh, mm-hmm. about the OKR, uh, from Christina Vodka. Um, okay. she's very well written because it's text, uh, the side of a fiction on a small startup. So it really puts things in context. Like on... storytelling. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the, the book is like the first part is storytelling and the second part is the fundamental and the theory. So okay. it's super complete. Very, very well done. There is another one which called measure what matters. Um, mm-hmm. but I've been told is is less, um, actionable, but mm-hmm. I haven't read it. So I can't, can't really, uh, uh, talk about it. Um, uh, Melissa Perry, 
you know, uh, escaping the build trap. Exactly, classic, but it's it's it covers a very very large spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's very easy to read because it's small um, small paragraphs. Uh, so so unlike that, obviously, um, I read like inspired and empowered um, around the time we had the coaching also with Marty Kagan. So mm-hmm. uh, I reread them. Um, and and continuous discovery habits, uh, Teresa Torres. Mm-hmm. Those uh, were cool. good. So yeah, my library is a half product and uh, half psychology. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, what can you give one in, uh, on psychology? Um, yeah. So me when I when I look at psychology, I uh, would basically look at uh, the way our childhood affect our adult life mm-hmm. um, and then that brings some uh, interesting concepts uh, so notably one which is called um, codependence mm-hmm. and so there is a very good book which is facing codependence by uh, Melodipia um, it's a good book because it explains the dynamic you have in your family which is your first social group and the habits you built in that group mm-hmm. to get what you need as a child, and then how sometimes those habits stick with you, even though you are in a different setup and you are interacting with different groups. And that mm-hmm. can explain some of the automatism, the way we do what we do, why we do it, and things like that. So that's a really good book. She's a very talented uh, professional. Mm-hmm. And there's another one which is very uh, famous as well, but I would recommend anyone to read, which is The Drama of the Gifted Child um, by Alice Miller. It's really very yeah powerful uh, readings. Interesting. Need to get into into those topics. I actually like um, psychology uh, or neuroscience books as well. But yeah, I'm maybe more neuroscience than than psychology. But I'm I'm quite interested in it, so I will add them to my reading list for Good. sure. Um, and what are are your three favorite cities? Three favorite cities. Uh, Lisbon. <laughs> I live in it. Uh, I had the chance to live in Marseille for a while. Um, my uh, first <coughs> company. <laughs> Sorry. It went through the wrong tube. I, I, I realized it was going, but I was trying to, to avoid it. I thought you went to Marseille too, and then like... Uh, It reminded you of something. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it was just, <clears throat> yeah, sorry. No worries. So yeah, you're saying Marseille? Yeah, so my first company, my, my co-founder was from Marseille. And then at some point I was fed up of doing all those conference calls uh, from my basement in London and him from his like sunny terrace. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, I'm moving in, dude. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I flew from um, London to Marseille. It's, it's a very, it's a city, yeah. It's my city of heart. In France, I really like it. So I'll say Lisbon, Marseille, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, for the third position, we might have London in there. London, chaotic London, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's also it's it's a world city, truly. Like mm-hmm. everything happened there, everything is there, everything at your doorstep, the best and the worst. Yeah, um, but it's yeah. also. A highly functioning city, which I really like. It's like everything works a little bit the way it's supposed to mm-hmm. to work, and um, and you've got world class everything. Yeah, that's cool. 
Great. Um, last but not least, um, can you name also three favorite podcasts? So there is uh, <clears throat> Lainey's podcast. That that's that's very well done. So mm. I, I actually listened to that one quite a bit. I don't I don't know if I'm gonna find it. There is this podcast from a guy in the US. Ten percent happier. Ten percent happier. Yeah, and it's not product. It's mm. um it's more psychology. Okay. But it's a it, it it bridges with the professional world a bit. Uh so it's really cool. And uh, a huge variety of topics. Um, very inspiring people talking. And so 10% happier, I really like. Uh, cool. Lenny's podcast. Um, yeah, I'm getting into it. And uh, the other one is a French one. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's the latest one I've been like listening to. And it's called Dans la boîte à gants, which means in the glove box. Okay. And it's... Uh, What's it's, it about? It's a young guy. He goes interviewing automotive people. So, like you know, race um, race car drivers or uh, designers or journalists or all those people who have lived or work around automotive. Automotive. And it's very well mm-hmm. done. There's genuine conversations. It's super relaxed. It's cool. Cool. And soon enough, the productized slash product weekend podcast as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. To catch up with the previous episodes. Yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, Julian, it was a pleasure meeting you and having this chat. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to know more about you? Connect. Julianescu.io. Cool. All right. That's we'll uh, the website. Link that to the. And you can send me an email at hello at julianiscure.io <laughs> cool amazing Julian thank you so much for your time thanks to you pleasure.